Great form by you hitting play on this podcast. Now, check out Same Racer, the brand new racing app for Same Race multi-tips. Same Racer. Download from the App Store and Google Play. Powered by Bluebet. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. On 882-6PR, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day. Generations of excellence since 1888. Hello once again, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Doing ordinary things extraordinarily well. My guest in this episode is a a man I think it's uh, fair to say has done more than his fair share of civic duty, uh, and you'll find out why over the course of the next hour or so. So it's with great pleasure I say welcome the Honourable Bob Kachira. Hi, Tim. Thanks very much for coming in. Thank you. Um, Your CV that you sent through to us is uh, is epic. It's about 25 pages long, (laughs) uh, such as the the, the list of of things that you can – Lay claim to over your uh, your huge career in in public life. Um, oh, I suppose to quote Albert Facey, I've had a very fortunate. Life, <laughs> to be quite honest with you, I've had a great time. Yeah, Still having a great time. So, some some pretty significant challenges uh, across the, that time, though, as well in in uh, your time in the police force, uh, in in politics as well, and and now, of course, uh, uh, as a, as an advocate of sorts for uh, for the aged care sector. Uh, as well, no shortage of challenges there, are there? No, there certainly aren't. In fact, yeah. I'm doing that to make sure I get a bed. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, if you can't get a bed, <laughs> I've enjoyed, no hope for anyone else. I've enjoyed my life, Tim, it's, and I'm still going, as I say. I'm yes, still enjoying still it. Yes, still going strong. Uh, now, tell me about uh, uh, about the early years of, uh, of Bob Kachira, because I know you were not born... Uh, here in Australia, born in Wales with a with a surname like Kachira, it's probably not. The, if I had to guess, which country you might have been born in? Well, uh, it was. Uh, I wouldn't have picked Wales. Uh, well, no. It's uh, in fact, my dad was Czech, and my yeah. mom, and my mother was Welsh. So I sing and drink beer, but <laughs> but uh, my mum and dad met during the war. Uh, dad yeah. was uh, um, he was with the Free Czech Air Force, and uh, they met in a little place called Tolbenny down in South Wales. My mother was a WAF; she was in the Air Force. Uh, they met, and uh, I was the result. Uh, they they married um, during the war, and then uh, my father had actually come from the Czech Republic, uh, or in those days Czechoslovakia. His he thought his family had been destroyed. Uh, he was uh, got locked up in a place called Theresienstadt, uh, which eventually became a Jewish ghetto. But at the time, it was a, a refugee. A, a, sorry, not a refugee camp. It was a uh, an internment camp for partisans. Right. He escaped from there into. Um, into 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 Europe and from then to North Africa, where he actually joined the French Legion of all things. Wow! And uh, when the uh, when the French surrendered, uh, he and his mates uh, grabbed a boat and went to Gibraltar. Ended up in in the UK and then joined the uh, the Free Czech Air Force. So and that's where they met. Uh, I was the the product of that, and I actually grew up in Wales. Incredible. Yeah, and I grew up in a little place called um, Mam Island, which was near Abergavenny. Yeah, uh, the song "Abergavenny" always reminds me of that. You've, uh, you, you've lost that uh, that lovely, songful Welsh. Oh, it comes out boy way of talking. It yeah. comes out boy when I start. If you go over stuff, there, I yeah. start singing, <laughs> and within five minutes of singing or, or being with Welshmen, I'm back yeah. talking again. Yeah. Uh, has your father ever been able to go back to? Well, uh, what was Czechoslovakia? Or he was did, it, he uh, did go back. We've still got family there. In fact, yeah. Susan and I were there about five years ago and we met uh, my father's side of the family. And the interesting part about it was Dad um, 
dad had a first wife who he thought had been killed uh, during the war or was not had thought of being wiped out during the war and when he went back, she was still alive, so that made a, That's that was a bit problematic for him. <laughs> so, uh, but he went through a divorce and eventually came back to the UK, and uh, uh, the family started yeah. from there. I've got a brother and a sister; they both live in Australia as well. So, yeah. Uh, okay. So, so what brought the Kachiras here to Perth then? Well, originally, I sort of kicked it off. I was coming here with a mate of mine. We were going to come out here when I was. Um, I'd, I'd finished high school. I was working in my dad's business. He was a small business, a small goods in, manufacturer. In Wales? In Wales. He was a butcher and small goods manufacturer. Um, I, I, I'd i looked to go to university. To stu- I wanted to study economics at the time. I don't know why. It's a terrible subject. But, um, <laughs> anyway, I didn't. A mate, a mate of mine, Verdon Oliver, and I decided we'd come on what was called the Big Brother Scheme to yep. Australia. Um, for one thing, another Verdon pulled out of the scheme, and then my my uh, my parents decided that they would sell their businesses and emigrate. It. My father couldn't really see a great future in the UK at that time. Yep. And uh, we came out here in uh, 1964. We we came out on the fair sky as ten pound poms, and mm. um, the whole family arrived, and uh, uh, we got here. I I think my first job was working in a butcher's shop in Subiaco. And uh, from then on, um, things sort of grew from there. The yeah. whole family decided to come. I've got to say, it's the greatest thing we ever did. Yeah. This, without a doubt, is the most wonderful country in the world. It's, mm. uh, and um, Did you choose Perth or did yeah, it was, was it chosen for you? Well, it was chosen for me because I was, well, I was just 19 at the time, yeah. but the whole family came. Dad was uh, originally intending to go on to um, Wyala in South Australia because we had friends there. And there was plenty of work in Wyala at that time. There wasn't a great deal of work here in in Perth, but he was offered a job with uh, one of the big bacon factories here at the time yep. uh, in Midland. Uh, so they got off the boat. And you had a choice. You could get off the boat where you wanted, basically. Mm. Uh, we got off the boat. We met um, some friends here that were already living here, stayed with them for a short while, and then we moved out actually to live in Midland where, where Dad's um, work was. Uh, and uh, I saw... <laughs> Do you, do you, can you still remember when you first set foot on Australian soil as a nineteen-year-old? Any any standout memories of oh, of yeah. Perth? Look, I think well, the first one was that great big gasometer as you came into Fremantle on the boat. It was painted like a globe of the world. But mm. my first real th- remember uh, my f- memories of Perth were the beaches. Yeah, I just fell in love. There's a great line in Robert Drew's book, The Sharknet, where he says, um, "Only people." that come from Perth could imagine the smell of the beach at Scarborough on a hot day. Mm. And that smell still, it's still with me now. Even if I go to the beach now, you know, all these years later, it's still there. And um, mm. I just, I thought how, you know, this is a paradise, this mm. place. This is amazing. And mm. uh, within a couple of months, I was starting to surf and... Uh, and I'd Feeling met, like a local. I was. I'd met my wife and which was, I've got to say, was the best thing that ever happened to me, meeting <laughs> Susan. <laughs> Quite frankly, she's still the wind beneath my wings. Uh, yeah, what fifty-two years later? Yeah, that was the second great memory I had of Perth was uh, meeting Susan in the October. We landed in the June, and I met her in October. So um, uh, from then on, it just went on for better and better. Yeah, uh, what drew you then? Uh, you know, you've gone from the from the butcher shop in in Subiaco there. Yeah, what what attracted you then towards the police force? Uh, I had an uncle Frank, my mother's uncle, who was a policeman in England, and uh, he used to come down and visit and uh, tell these great stories about the police. And I can remember going up to the railway station to see him off back to Lancashire or where it was he was living, and he'd point at all these people on the 
and say they were, you know, they were all crims and this. There were probably people just going to work, but it didn't matter. <laughs> but it always fascinated me. And uh, the second thing was that Susan's father said to me, uh, I, I said that I intended to get engaged and marry her. And he said, well, you better get a real job. Because at that stage, I was doing part time jobs and um, just bumming around and yep. surfing. I don't know what attracted me. I, it just did. It, it was. Um, it was. It was something that just sort of pulled something, me in. Something that uh, that you thought about for a while, or did you, was there a call out at the time to recruit some new people, and you just no, thought, "Yep, yeah, I'll give it a, give it a go." Well, I I I sort of went. And, uh, I was going to go back to university, or at least mm. start university, and uh, I didn't. Um, and I was just looking for a job that would give me security, yeah. I suppose. So I decided to go along and apply. And the first thing they said, you can't have flat feet. And I've got flat feet. In those days, funnily enough, they didn't even test your eyes. They just counted them. <laughs> so flat was, feet, though. No, but anyway, I got, <laughs> I, yeah, I ended up as a flat foot. And uh, we, did, uh, we did 16 weeks in the police school, just up the road here at the old girls' school on top of the hill. Yep. And in 16 weeks, they turned you into Solomon. Yeah. Uh, um, it, it was a great experience, and I've never looked back. I've never regretted a day of being in the police. You know. Yeah. Well, look. Despite your flat feet, you managed to uh, uh, yeah. to to ascend the ranks there pretty quickly, didn't you? So we have to take a break, but I want to talk to you more about that because uh, yeah. you were uh, a, a pretty senior ranking uh, police officer mm. through some, um, you know, some some moments in in our criminal history that we still talk about today, mm. don't we? So I want to ask you about those uh, in a moment. Bob Kachira is uh, our special guest. You're listening to WA's Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since 1888. Tim McMillan is my name. Bob Kachira is my special guest in this edition of Inspiring Stories. Uh, Bob, we got up to the point where you'd uh, just signed up for the police force. Tell us about the night you graduated uh, well, was, from your initial training. Well, we got Susan and I got engaged that same night, and uh, a lot happening for you there. Yeah, that was night, that night. And I had to start work the next morning. Um, and my first, uh, my first job was they marched you out onto the beat, uh, and my first job was on the crosswalk in Murray Street in uh, in. In uh, Perth, outside, looking Bones. for jaywalkers. No, no, you had to. You actually had to control the traffic. Yeah, right. You had to stand on the crosswalk and stop because Saturday mornings in Perth was bedlam in those mm. days. Everybody came to shop, and you'd coming stop. into Bones. Yeah, and it had all the traffic, two-way traffic uh, going back and forth outside Bones Food Hall, and that wonderful smell that used to come yep. out of. And um, anyway, I'm, I'm standing on the footpath this morning. They'd march me out there. It was my first time I'd ever done any traffic control. I'm stopping the traffic. And during my time in the police force, I'd, I'd actually had an accident. I'd knocked four of my front teeth out with a surfboard. <laughs> and, and I had this denture fitted. And they gave you this whistle, you see. So I was standing on a crosswalk. And uh, Susan came down with all her girlfriends to show them who she got engaged to. And they're walking. She used to work at the PMG in Forest Place. They're walking back and forth across the, the crosswalk and she's saying, there he is, that's him, there he is. And I'm standing there and I stopped all the traffic, you see, so she could walk back and forth across the crosswalk. And I had my whistle in my mouth and I looked up and there was an MTT bus driver sitting there with a big green bus. And uh, I blew my whistle, you see, and called the traffic on and as I blew my whistle, my teeth shot out. <laughs> <laughs> and I caught, But I caught my teeth and the bus ran over my whistle. So I... I 
I never probably not a bad result, <laughs> all things considered. It was very <laughs> probably my most. Em- <laughs> it was my most embarrassing moment in the police force. I might say. Well, from there, seven years later, you're a detective. Yeah. Uh, what 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 sort of drew you down that path? I always wanted to be a detective. From the yeah. time I joined the police force, that was my one ambition was to get into that area of. Uh, I suppose it's the allure of you know the chase and all that. But yeah. Um, I, I spent two years walking the beat in Fremantle, and uh, whilst I was in Fremantle, I got to to be what they called the duty driver for all the detectives who used to drive them around on night right. patrol. And my ambition sort of grew from that. I thought, mm. oh, I want to get into this. And in those days, the CIB, as it was called, or the Criminal Investigation Branch, was was really regarded as the elite of the police force. They were mm. a bit like the SAS in the army, if you know what I mean. Mm. You know, they were considered to be the the top echelon. Yep. So if you got into that, you you were considered to be reasonably good. Yeah. I, I, we went to the country for a couple of years to Mount Barker, mm-hmm. and our son Tim was was born in Mount Barker, actually. We've got a Tim as well. as a great, great choice. Yeah. It was. <laughs> 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 that that was an experience. One of, Actually, if I can just touch on Mount Barker, it was yep. one of the experiences, I suppose, that shaped my life in that I'd come from living in a place called Cardiff in Wales where it was called Tiger Bay because you had so many different nationalities living there. Everybody yep. was striped. Mm. There were so many different colours and, and and there really wasn't a lot of racism there. You 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 sort of accepted that your mate was black or your mate – one of my best mates was Jewish, uh, mm. Sammy Ledska. And um, I was the son of a refo, you know, a refugee. My old man was a refo. And so there was an acceptance of difference my experience when I went to Mount Barker, when I, I walked into the pubs there the very first time. You were the out-of-towner. I, and firstly, I was the out-of-towner. Mm. But secondly, there were two bars. One was a white bar, one was a black bar. Mm. And it was straight out of apartheid. And this was mm. in, um, I'm, I'm talking about, what, 60, 65, 66, 67, before the Aboriginal people had even got a vote. Mm. And I just couldn't credit that in a country like Australia, you had this separation, you had this this group of people that were completely, and I suppose it's significant this week being NAIDOC yep. week. Yep. And, but I went down, my first day, I went down to the what they call the reserve, and there's about 600 people living in the most atrocious conditions in, these, in this place, which was outside, all, all the Aboriginal people were living there, and they were I mean, the Cracker family, for instance, that yeah. went on to become our best footballers. North Melbourne legends. Absolutely. And there were all these people were living there, and I just couldn't believe it. I, I thought, and I came home to my wife, Susan, and I said, I can't believe that, you know, and she said, well, that's the way it is. You know, they're the Aboriginal people. She yeah. said, they can't even vote. And they got the vote that year, 67, I think, and... Uh, uh, that sort of formed my view of how to deal with Aboriginal people from then on. And um, so I think it's fairly significant today, for instance, that uh, that um, Commissioner Dawson's come out and, and yeah. stated their apology. I, I think it's well-deserved, and uh, I, I applaud him for doing that. Mm. Um, because from then on, all through, I, I made, um, made it a point of, uh, I suppose, of my police career that I would try and treat people the same. Yeah, they, and you're talking about the late sixties and, and yet Well it was shocking. Still it's still yeah. an issue. It is still in, an issue in twenty eighteen. It is. Mm. Um, but I I got I was fortunate I got, we, we cracked a really big case when I was a young copper down at Mount Barker, which involved the theft of sheep, uh, of all things, the rustlers. And they were they were doing putting a rort in the local abattoirs and the local sale yards and um, the, the people that were doing the buying and selling 
uh, and I happened to fall across it and uh, the guys came down from Perth and they did the investigation. It turned out to be one of the biggest fraud investigations they'd ever had. Right. And at uh, 24 years of age, they offered me a place in the CIB in Perth. So I transferred from Mount Barker to be a detective. That was your, that was your ticket? That was my ticket into the CIB. A- yeah. And a stinted major crime and homicide? Yeah, all of those. The drug squad uh, yeah. as well. Yeah. Which, which of those was the toughest for you? Um, I, well, they were, I, homicide was probably the toughest, mm. particularly dealing with uh, not so much the work. The work was fairly basic and fairly straightforward. It was really dealing with the, the human impact of people being murdered, mm. especially kids. Uh, look, Yeah, well, I, you know, I wanted to ask you particularly about uh, the, the Grenifax murderers, murders that, that we still talk about mm. now as just being one of the most horrific chapters uh, in our history. You were there at the time. Uh, well, is, I, it, is it something that's still? I wasn't actually. I, I wasn't actually in? involved in the the front up uh, investigation. Others did that. I was the senior officer in charge of that mm. district at the time. And um, uh, but uh, that and others that I went to, I can remember a fellow that that buried his kids in a trench um, and put a lid on it and wouldn't tell us where the kids were. And um, and we found them a couple of days later after they died. And. Mm. Another fellow that shot his son with a shotgun and then tried to shoot himself but didn't and carried the body back into the house and I had to break into the house and find the body, the kid's body, and then the father's laying alongside of him still alive and um, those sort of things live with you. You never lose those. Were you a, a parent yourself by oh, this yeah, stage? Very much yeah. so. Did I you find it hard as a, to separate... Uh, your feelings uh, as a as a parent and seeing these horrific crimes being committed, but also having to do your job as an officer. Yeah, you do, and uh, the worst part about it is you you do bring it home with you, whether you like it or not. Mm. And, uh, that's where understanding wives, yeah, are the most uh, the greatest asset you can have in uh, as a policeman mm. or a police woman for that matter, uh, having a partner that understands you. It's because um, you do, and it still lives with you mm. even, even today. I, I think back, the Graniff murder was one of the worst that I ever saw. I, I, I wasn't personally involved with the, the actual investigation. I was just their senior officer. But, yeah. but I know for a fact that the guys that actually attended that murder were severely affected by it. How and, could you not be? But you had a different way it was a different way of dealing with it in those days. We we had a we had a police club in, in headquarters and you go down and have a few beers with your mates and just yeah, drink yeah. it away. Yeah, which in some ways was a real tragedy because a lot of mm. coppers ended up as alcoholics because that mm. was the only way they could deal with it. Um, but by the same token, it, it was a way of getting that out of your system. Yep. And it was a way of getting it out of your system without taking it home to your wife. Yeah. That was that was the the harder part of it. Even even now, we talk about these episodes uh, when we raise the issue of um, uh, you know these. People like William Patrick Mitchell, mm. uh, the the Grenifax murderer, uh, being able to apply for release, um, you know, and obviously whenever that comes up, it just brings back everything for uh, surviving relatives. Um, yep. You know, should we be restricting their uh, ability to apply for release, that sort of thing? It, it, where do you stand on that? Should should they just be locked up, throw the key away, see you later, never released? Look, I think it, de- it depends very much on every individual. Mm. Case. I mean, some cases are tragic, but they're they're a matter of circumstance. People like Mitchell, yeah, should never be released. Yeah, 
Also, the, the, also when we, I suppose when we talk about uh, legislation, maybe yep. uh, preventing any kind of release if they don't reveal the location of their victims as as well. I suppose it comes up in that conversation. Yeah, I agree. Uh, as well, I, you support that? I totally support that one. Yeah, I think that's that's absolute. Uh, if you're convicted, you're convicted, and mm. it's no it's no good to say. You know, I mean, the one that's been running around the papers recently, the guy that killed the woman down in the young girl down in Mosman Park. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> I've, there's an appeal on, as I understand it. So I'm not going to go into the fact, but it, he 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 was convicted, as far as I, I was concerned. Yeah, uh, and uh, I think the jury got it right. And, yeah, uh, end of story. Mm. But people like that. But you've got to have circumstances where the judge has got to have discretion, or the parole board's got to have discretion. Yeah. Um. But once, if you, I mean, I I, I charged on two occasions. I charged a person with murder. He, he was released, and uh, in fact, he was the last person ever sentenced to hang in Western Australia. And that was a fellow called Tilbury who murdered a young woman up in the hills and shot through to Kalgoorlie. Myself and a, another detective, Arthur Sims, went up and arrested him, brought him back, and he was charged with murder. Around about 15 years later, I attended the scene of a murder in Canning Vale, and there was a young woman trussed up on the bed who'd been murdered. And when I walked in, uh, I said to the investigating officer, if I didn't know better, this was done by a fellow called Tilbury, I said, because this is identical. Yep. And I said, but it can't be because he's in jail. He was sentenced to death. Um, as it turned out, he'd, his sentence was commuted. And on the, that was on the Friday we found the body. On the Monday, Vince Cadditch, who was doing the inquiry, rang me up and said, um, Bob, thanks for the tip. It was Tilbury. He wow. said, it's the same man. So. He should never be released. Yeah, um, people like that. So, but look, it's a choice. There are times when there's crimes of passion where mm. people kill their wives, or mm. vice versa. Mm. There's got to be a the legislation has got to have room to to move. Um, yeah, if you know what I mean. Yeah, you, in in a modern day and age, you just can't as much as you want to throw away the key. Mm. You've got to be able to. Cause what I don't agree with though is this business of it having to come up to involve the relatives every couple of years. There's got to be a better system than that. There has to be, to spare them the trauma yeah, again. Like everybody else, yeah. they're, they're, they're committed to life. Mm. Mm. When their child or their, their daughter or their wife is murdered, they're committed mm. to that sentence for life. They mm. can never get out of it. We're getting very intense and heavy. I know. Here. Sorry well, about that. We're going to take a break. After that, I'm, I'm going to ask you about your time in politics, which seems absolutely trivial compared to what you've just uh, <laughs> well, I don't know what you've that. just been talking about. No, I'm joking. Uh, that and also uh, your beloved Western Force oh, as well. No, Plenty no, to get through. Bob no. Kachira is our special guest. This is WA's Inspiring Stories. Back soon here on 882 6PR. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day. Generations of excellence since 1888. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day. Generations of excellence since 1888. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Our special guest in this edition is uh, the Honourable Bob Kachira. Uh, Bob, uh, I don't think I ever mentioned that you did uh, ascend to the ranks of Assistant Commissioner uh, for WA Police. Mm. Uh, you, you stepped away from the police force and decided to uh, enter uh, a whole new world of politics. <laughs> Why on earth would you do that? I mean, you know, spending so long in the police force is uh, is is, a, is more than enough for one person to have to carry through life. And then you've decided to step into the mad world of politics. Well, I always, uh, you know, I suppose you always were political in the police. Although yeah. I, in the police force, I always served the government of the day. Uh, yep. And I never questioned the government of the day. I questioned them, but I never... 
you know, I always believed as a senior public servant, whether you're a policeman or a whatever sort of bureaucrat, you've got to serve the government of the day. And people didn't know my politics. Mm. They knew I was somewhat left-leaning because I had a real – Brian Bull sort of asked me when he was commissioner to um, come into the community policing uh, role after I came back from a Churchill Fellowship overseas. Yep. And um, that uh, – I was very fortunate in being able to introduce a lot of the community policing programs, particularly the ones for Aboriginal people, um, domestic violence, um, and uh, uh, in particular multicultural groups. Um, I, that was my passion. Yeah, was to make sure. And we actually started the National Police Ethnic Advisory Bureau, which was advising commissioners of police right across Australasia and New Zealand on how to deal with the upcoming problems we were going to have. With ethnic groups, yep. um, particularly the youth gang side of it. Mm. Um, so I suppose I was heavily involved with politics, but Jeff Gallup had seen me speak on a couple of occasions at different things, and Jeff came and saw me after I announced my retirement from the police force. Um, I wasn't enamoured with the appointment of the New Zealand commissioner that they appointed here, Barry Matthews. I, I thought that was a bad choice, particularly following on from uh, Bob Falconer. Mm. And we needed a local blown. I suppose I was a bit peeved. Was that one of the reasons why you yeah, I was a bit, decided to walk away? Yeah, I was a bit peeved about um, – I thought either myself or Bruce Brennan, for instance, would have made – you know, we, we could have done the job. Mm. That sounds big-headed. But I don't mean that. Bruce was a was very capable of doing the job and there were a number of other senior officers that could have done the job and to bring the bloke in. And he, he turned out to be a bit of a uh, – anyway, he, he was a non-event as Say a commissioner. It, um, We're amongst so, friends here. Oh, no. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it was a bit of a non-event, Barry. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, so I was a bit grumpy with the with the government at the time, and I thought, oh, I've had enough. I'm going to get out. And um, Jeff Gallup came to see me. He came around home and had a cup of coffee, and I knew Jeff. I had enormous respect for Jeff, and he basically talked me into putting my hand up, together with my son, Tim. He's a, he's a bit of a, a left-wing lawyer, you know. Mm. He, he talked me into it as well, and... Uh, so the family came together and we said, well, what do you reckon? And Susan said, let's have a go. Have a go. Yeah. And you went up against uh, a, sitting a name who's only just recently sort of yeah. drifted away from politics, yeah, Kim, Kim Holmes. Kim Holmes. He was a sitting minister. For the seat of to, It was quite funny. I said to Jeff, yeah, look, I'll stand, for, I'll stand for politics, but I want a couple of assurances. I said, I need some money because I don't have much money. I'd, yeah. Um, and uh, I'd like a safe seat. And he said, well, guarantee those. Yeah. <laughs> you guarantee it, all right. I raised most of the money myself. <laughs> <laughs> and the seat he gave me was where there was a sitting minister in Mount Lawley, which was considered a conservative seat. But yeah. look, it didn't matter. We went out. And I had a, the best part of politics for me was campaigning. Yeah. In fact, I still do it now with, yep. the, with the Labor Party. I still go mm. and help them out. But it was very disconcerting. I'd just done a, you know, six or seven years on the drug squad. And it's very hard when you go and knock on somebody's door. They open the door and they go, no, and they slam the door in your face. <laughs> and next week you see all these tomato plants going over the back fence, you know. <laughs> but, uh, look, I enjoyed the campaigning. Um, it, it was amazing. Um, how did you find once people sort of started to treat you as a politician rather than a police officer, how, how do you describe the, the differences in, in the way that you were received by people? Was great it, difference. Great, great difference. difference. Better? No, there's a, there's a there's much more. Of, well, there was in those days. Tomato growers aside, yeah, it's just tomato <laughs> growers aside. Uh, look, I, people had respect for me because of what I'd done in the police force, which yeah. was definitely a plus for me mm. as a politician, and I was determined not to lose that respect. So, um, uh, it, people have a great 
deal more cynicism once you move into politics because yep. they're always looking for the agenda you've got. They, they think every politician's got an agenda, and they do. The agenda is to get elected. Yeah. But um, I, I didn't. I, that's the fundamental difference I found was between mm. that that lack of respect, uh, and that's grown over the years. That's grown. But look, politics was fun, campaigning mm. was fun, and I had. Except I've got to say that the, the night I was elected, um, Jeff rang me and said, uh, "Bob, I'm going to offer you a ministry as well." And I said, um, uh, "What? What? Which one?" He said, "Well, you went straight into health, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, which is I, a, yeah. huge." From it nowhere was. to, to well, health. To oh, no, Minister no, for Health. I was the only one that wasn't in the room in the, the portfolio. <laughs> I got, I, I That's got a, a huge portfolio to take on, uh, you know, as a relatively new politician. Well, it was challenging, I've got to say. Yeah. It was enormously challenging. It was also enormously satisfying as, as a portfolio. Yeah. And I must say, I think Roger Cook's doing a, a tremendous job at the moment, yeah. a really good job. Take us back to 2001 then, because yeah. uh, there's always a lot going on in that. I got a I got a area. What, what was what were the, the the big health issues for for Perth and WA? Hadn't changed. Two thousand and one. Haven't changed a great deal. The lack mm. of beds. Um, yeah. Shortage of nurses. The uh, the cost of doctors. Um, the constant fight with the federal government. That yep. that is that is ridiculous. They have got to get rid of that. That is mm. stupid. It's got to go one way or the other. You know. And this constant fighting and blaming each other all the time for health. Health is a national problem. It always will be. There was a great book I read. What I did for the first 100 days, I read every piece of literature I could get my hands on to find out how the portfolio worked. And I found out very quickly, you don't run the health department. Mm. You actually try and run the politics of the health department, which mm. is a very different thing. Mm. And when you're dealing with people, I mean, people talk about the CFMEU and, and the so-called unions. The strongest and most militant union in Australia is the AMA. Mm. And it is in this state. It always has been. And they um, they only have one objective, to get as much money as they can for their doctors. And Did you clash with them? Oh, yes, clash constantly, mm. constantly with them. But um, when I say clash, there were times when we worked together, mm. but there were also times where we were fundamentally opposed mm. for what they were wanting to do. Mm. Because, look, the cost of health every year hasn't changed. It was going up at 8% a year when I was the minister. We managed to get it down to 5% a year without cutting services. But most of the money, the increases in doctors, salaries, specialist money, and I, I did lose a bit of respect for senior doctors in many ways when, mm. I, was, when I was health minister, mainly because of other. The biggest challenges, um, well, we only had, at that stage, we had two hospitals since yep. then. We, and I brought Mick Reed over from Sydney to do what was called the Reed Review. And we went through and did a complete review of the health system here, and we, we, we mapped out a... Um, we mapped out a forward-looking plan, which has now been, I'm very pleased to say, has been implemented. Basically, yep. you've got Fiona Stanley, the new children's hospital, all those things. And that all emanates from that, that read review. Yep. I'm not saying, you know, all I did was instigate it. But, mm. but it's very Gives you an idea of how long it takes yeah, for these well, things to actually materialise, doesn't it? But it's also very pleasing to see. The other thing was the enormous fight you had with your fellow uh, your fellow ministers. Mm. Because at that stage, I, my budget was about one8 a billion a year, I think, which was about a third of the state budget. Mm. And they were constantly wanting to get the money off me. So, I'm know, sure. Had a lot of yeah. uh, But look, enormously satisfying yeah. job. Yeah. Enormously satisfying job as health minister. You, you, you then went on to uh, to hold uh, the uh, ministries for, for tourism, small business, sport and recreation, Peel in the Southwest, uh, disability services, uh, citizenship and multicultural interests, uh, minister for seniors. Can I ask, why never the police? The, the police? 
I, did, I, did, did you? Yeah, I was offered. Want it. to exclude yourself from that? Yeah, I did. I, I, I was offered it um, at one stage. Uh, Jeff discussed it with me, uh, but I always said to Jeff, and following on from Jeff uh, Alan Carpenter, though I I didn't spend much time as a minister under Alan. Um, Alan and I didn't see eye to eye, but. Um, uh, under Jeff, I wouldn't take it because I was it would always be seen that I was trying to get my own back, or I didn't yeah. want to. I didn't want to be part of it. I, I was quite happy to advise, and we had a good police minister at the time. Anyway, they, yeah. you know, Michelle did a good job while I was there. It was, um, I, I, she would constantly. We have, actually here and I shared the same office in Parliament House. And, yeah, uh, we we worked well together. Mm. So they were getting my the benefit of my experience without me being in the firing line mm. as coppers. And those poor fellows Jeff gave me, they were very the, – probably the most satisfying one was disability services, funnily yeah. enough. Yeah. Because you were dealing with people that had more challenges in a day than all of us would get in, a, in, in our lifetime. Yeah. So uh, yeah. if you could make a difference, it was good. Was it uh, your time um, holding the, uh, the, the aged care portfolio that – Drew you towards doing that, uh, you know, in, in yeah. recent times. Yeah, very much so. Um, oh, well, apart from securing your own bed, exactly, <laughs> <laughs> and the fact I was getting older. But uh, it was, yeah, it, it was because I could see the challenge coming up. We've got an enormous challenge in terms of aged care in this state. Yes, yeah. huge challenges. Yeah, not just in this state, but nationally, because you've got this big peak coming through the baby boomers, which mm. on one. Um, that are going to have to be dealt with in the last in, mm. in, in the next few years, and people are living longer too. But you Absolutely. get you, you, it's um it's an interesting portfolio. Health was interesting too from the perspective that you could actually make a difference just with small things. You you could have all this fighting on the national scene, but I can always remember I had a huge fight with um one of the highlights for me in health was two main highlights. One of the first one was dealing with the kids' hospital, but I had a big fight with um with John Howard over putting an MRI machine in in the in the kids' hospital in, in Princess Margaret. We didn't have one in there when I was health minister. Right. But they'd issued 15 licences to private operators in the state. And one of the reasons they wouldn't give us a um, a, um, a licence was they said we had too many machines here. Well, we, we had to... We had to anaesthetise the kids and take them in an ambulance down to Charlie Gardner's to use mm. the MRI. Mm. Anyway, we had this fight and I, I teed it up. I was a bit naughty. I teed it up with this, this mum to come on the phone one day when John Howard was on 6PR. Brilliant. And I teed it up for this woman to come on and ring him and she absolutely embarrassed. Uh, it was such an embarrassment. I got a phone call from his chief of staff the next day to say, "When do you want the license?" <laughs> it was a bit naughty, but uh, anyway, there you go. So six PR played a part in getting they the first did, they MRI. Did. They did. They did at uh, at PMH. You, you did. You Fantastic. Did. It was Paul Murray was the uh, was the guy at that stage. Uh, uh, Moona and I used to uh, um, used to, we used conspire. To get together, conspire regularly, mate. <laughs> well done. Well, fantastic results. So that is entirely justified, uh, Bob. We have to take another break but after that I, I really want to talk about the Western Forces I'm not sure people are completely aware of what role you played in getting the Western Force up and running here mm. in Perth so uh, that's all ahead Bob Kachira is our special guest on Inspiring Stories here on 8826 br You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 8826PR for Barra and O'Day WA's family owned funeral directors you're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since 1888. Welcome back to WA's Inspiring Stories, where our special guest is the Honourable Bob Kachira. Uh, Bob, the Western Force, uh, you played a key role in uh, getting the Western Force up and running here. Was rugby 
uh, always a great passion of yours. Oh, absolutely. I I'm suppose a, coming from Wales. Well, Welshman boy, or what do you yeah. mean? <laughs> that's, that's the, that's the Welsh and you're coming through. Oh, it was, it was. It was, uh, in fact, um, Jeff Stooks came to see me when I was minister. Jeff and the, and the other guys, Russell Perry, those guys that were currently at that, that time running um, rugby union here said, uh, look, we're going to make the bid. We're going to yep. do the bid for it. What's the government going to do about it? So anyway, I, I, at that time I was sports minister. I was, uh, and mind you, trying to, trying to persuade Ron Alexander to put any money into rugby was pretty <laughs> bloody hard, I can tell you. But uh, anyway, we decided we'd go for the bid and uh, I became part of the bid group from then on and uh, yep. I, I presented the government's case. But when I went over to do the bid, uh, there was the head of the ARU at that time, was a fellow called Fellows, and he was a lovely guy. It's not the same mob you got there now. And yep. I call him a mob, quite frankly, because mm. I'm, I'm absolutely disgusted with, with what the ARU has done to Western Australia. But I'll get onto that in a second. Mm. I went across and did the bid, and we had all the we had these big thick booklets and everything all done out. We had the accountants, the money, and everything. And they said to me, "Why does the government want? Why 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 do you, as the government minister, want the Western Force to come here?" And I said, "Can I relate a story to you?" I said, um, "When I was eight years old, my grandfather took me to the Arms Park in Cardiff to watch the New Zealanders play um, play Wales in their first game, one of their first games after the war." And I said, and I'm standing there in, in, in the Arms Park and there were 60,000 Welshmen there and if anybody's been to the Arms Park and an international and they all start singing, it is just an amazing experience. Yeah. You know, the conductor doesn't conduct the band, he conducts the Great West Stand. And uh, anyway, the New Zealanders came out and they did a haka. Yeah. And I'm telling this story to the AAU. I said, they did a haka, I said, for the first time ever on the, on the Arms Park. And I said, and there was dead silence. You could hear a pin drop when they did the haka. And when they finished, the Welsh captain turned around and looked at the stand and I said, and all of a sudden 60,000 Welshmen started singing Cum Londa. <laughs> and I said, and when they finished, I said, the Welsh team ran out and they beat the living daylights out of the Kiwis. I said, they, the Kiwis lost that game. I said, and I think it's the last game they ever lost in Wales. Yeah. But anyway, I said, and you know what? I said, I was there. At eight years of age, I was there. I said, and why I want the Western Force here is I want every eight-year-old West Australian kid that wants to be a wallaby, the very first time the Western Force runs out, I want them to say, I was there. Yeah. I was there. And why was that so important? Because that opened up the pathway to international glory for our mm. kids here. Mm. And what the bloody ARU has done is they have strangled mm. that pathway. Mm. They have stopped our kids from being able to look towards the wallabies. Now, they'll say, oh, no, no, they can get but the fact is it's taken away that aspiration and it, yeah. I'm so angry with them. And, um, yeah. But uh, and look, it, the, the whole establishment of the Western Force was fantastic. I was so privileged to be part of it as, yep. as a sports minister. Stooksy did a great job on the day that, um, on the day that we won the bid. It was, uh, in fact, I've got to tell you, a couple of weeks before that, um, Justin Madden came over. He was the sports minister for Victoria. Yeah. And there's this this famous uh, uh, photograph of us doing an arm wrestle mm. uh, because they wanted the Melbourne team. Mm. In actual fact, what happened? And that arm wrestles happened again just recently. Oh, I know, but, but I actually won this one. Oh, good! Only because Justin let me make because he was a huge. <laughs> but he he's said, a big unit. It's quite funny what I'm talking to him. He said. I don't want a bloody rugby team at the moment. He said, I've got too much else on my plate. He said, we've got the Commonwealth Games Plus being coming. an AFL nut. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, so I said, anyway we, uh, we got the call to say a couple of days, a couple of weeks later, we got the call to say we'd won it. And uh, it, was, it was one of the highlights of my life, I yeah. say, when it happened. Yep. And the greatest part was being asked to toss the coin at the first game 
uh, which Jeff asked me to do, and I, I've I've still got the coin at home, fifty yeah. cent coin, and uh, I I was so chuffed when that happened. Yeah. Um, because look, rugby is um, whatever they say. It is the game they play in heaven. In, in fact, uh, in, in fact, uh, what's his name? Um, Channel Seven, Jeff. Um, asked me the Channel Seven reporter asked me. He said at the time, he said, uh, Bob, what do you think? Uh, what do you think of the the game they play in heaven now being played in Perth? I said, Well, it's just come uh, home, hasn't it, Jeff? <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, well, unfortunately, that uh, that 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 game's gone from heaven to hell here, hasn't it? Uh, yeah, although very something of a lifeline. Um, Look, I think what know, Andrew Forrest with, is doing with, with is with Twiggy stepping in. Yeah, I think I think what Twiggy's doing is outstanding. Um, Absolutely outstanding, and I do hope it works. Yeah, for, for, for no other reason than it's Just a slap stick it up the, the ARU. Stick it up the ARU because, look, honestly, having dealt with them over the time I was sports minister, and, and having because, I mean, when you look at it, what we got out of that bid, we got a brand new stadium, a, 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 a um, uh, you know, a, a rectangular stadium. stadium. Yep. We ended up, I started the, the the ball rolling for the brand new stadium we've got for uh, at Burswood now. That started the ball rolling because I did the task force reports with John Langelon. And that bid really put sport on the map here, not just rugby, it put all sports on the map when we mm. did it. So, for, And the ARU promised us faithfully that we'd get a test match every year, that uh, they would they would put in place the pathway that and everything else like this. And... To do what they've done is 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 um is a complete bastardisation of what was done there. Quite oh, frankly. and our fate was sealed as we now know, uh, long before most rugby fans here even exactly knew anything too. about it. And that's why I think Stooksy and those guys re- re- resigned. I mean, mm. poor old Russell Perry, he he'd roll over, and you know, I, I can't believe it. The other thing was there was a simple answer. Yeah, if they wanted to reduce the number of teams, the simple answer would have been to amalgamate Canberra and Melbourne. Yep. the two teams there, because even when on their best days they weren't fielding as many supporters as what the Western Force could. Yeah, and uh, look, hats off to Twiggy. I think that uh, what he's doing is great, and if and if it it succeeds, it gives that pathway and that mm. aspiration back to our youngsters. We we are rapidly running out of time, Bob. We've we've barely got time to cover what you've uh, been able to achieve in the aged care sector. But just uh, just really quickly. Uh, tell us, you know, what you are hoping to achieve uh, through your various roles within uh, aged care. What are you most proud of achieving? Uh, in aged care? Mm. Um, not, not, not as the minister, but uh, now, yeah, as, a, just now. As, a, as an advocate in your post-political life. Well, I, I spent 10 years as uh, involved with COTA, Council yep. of the Aging, and we, I think the, the proudest part of it is being able to achieve policies that all governments can look at to make sure that older people get yeah, a fair deal. Um, it's getting harder and harder for pensioners nowadays yep. to make ends meet. And if we can just simply guarantee a quality of life that people have earned and deserved, and uh, I, I don't agree with this this view that um, you know that that uh, that it's an age of, 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 of entitlement. I don't agree with with um, what was said. People are entitled. Mm. to enjoy a quality of life when they've given their lifetime to their nation and are given their lifetime to the, to to achieving what Australia's achieved i think that um if you can guarantee policies and and governments uh, making sure that people have got a quality of life i think that to me is 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 the ultimate um mm. i'm able to do that through my involvement with acacia living and uh, the 
which used to be called RSL Care. We've got about nine villages. In fact, we opened a new one, a new respite centre up in Durian Bay um, later this month. Um, so it's just making sure people have got a quality of life that, they, that they've earned. And yep. that they deserve, I think, yep. is, is the thing that I set out to achieve. Just lastly, you met, and you know, very quickly, you mentioned, uh, you know, you're hoping to at least reserve a bed for you. <laughs> When's that going to be? Oh, <laughs> and where will that be? Jury and baby, lovely seven, spot. 70 is now the new 40, you know, so I, I don't intend... Uh, I'm not suggesting anything here, Bob, but uh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to be the one to call time. No, look, I, I, I'm still enjoying life every day. My old, my old man had a philosophy in life. He used to wake up as the old Charlie the Czech. He used to say, I made it is another day. So it is another day I made it. Yes, fantastic. <laughs> Bob Kachira, we, we feel like I've, you know, I feel like I've just scratched the surface here. There's so much uh, to your, uh, your colourful career uh, over many decades. But uh, thank you so much for coming in and sharing some of your stories. Tim, really appreciate it. Tim, thank you for having me. It's very flattering to be considered to be famous, I must say. We'll, I, we'll get you back soon. Thanks very much. You've been listening to Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Everyone has a story to tell. This one, Bob Kachira's, brought to you by Bower and O'Day. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another WA inspiring story. Sometimes needing new tyres can catch us by surprise. That's why tyre power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tyrepower.com.au or call 13 91.